Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast. I'm Larson Hicks. I'm joined by my uh, interlocutor, uh, Pastor Rich Lusk. Locutor, That's not locutor. a word normal people would use, Larson. How do you? How does that word? Is that the right pronunciation? Interlocutor. I think you pronounced it right, but I All don't right. think normal people know what it means. I'm here <laughs> with my conversation partner. That's right. So this is the God a Minute podcast where Pastor Rich Lusk and I uh, chat about whatever it is we're uh, we're talking about, thinking about. And uh, today's topic is empathy, a topic that he and I have have uh, mulled over a few different times. And I think I think the topic really got um, kind of a head of steam on it. Uh, back when uh, Joe Rigney went on Doug Wilson's Man Rampant podcast, and that was probably a response to a, an article that he wrote, I'm sure. Um, so he he basically went on and argued against empathy, argued that that it's not really a virtue. He really cast it in a fairly negative light, um, and I thought he made a really a lot of really wonderful points um, in that podcast. But like everything, you know, there's a ditch on either side of the road. So I think there's probably more to be said about this topic before we just uh, kind of uh, relegate empathy to the uh, to the uh, to the in, in the bad column of, uh, of of emotions or buzzwords in our in our modern day. So how do you, how do you think about empathy, Pastor Lusk? Yeah, so um, you're you're right. I, I actually think in the um, in the modern context, probably the person who brought the problems with empathy to light first was this guy. Okay. Uh, oh yeah. This, this, we're gonna. I think we're gonna do a whole episode on this book at some yeah, point. So we we'll should. have a chance to talk about empathy more. Friedman's book, book is one of my favorites. Not a Christian. Friedman, if you're not but, watching the video, like, failure of nerve, Friedman. Yeah, failure of nerve. It's very very good. That. Yeah, so so we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that book at some point in a future episode. Uh, Rigney more recently picked up on that, and I thought he did a great interview with Doug. I mean, I yeah. I, I, I was very empathetic with his position, uh, very very much in tune with what he had to say about empathy. But I also think he could have saved himself some trouble on the back end of that, where he yeah. you know he did he he got some pushback, and I'm, I mean I, I think the people pushing back. We're not being very empathetic with Joe and with what he was saying, where he was coming from. Uh, but by making a crucial distinction, and this is it, empathy, like any other uh, emotional state, uh, pretty much can be good or bad, mm -hmm. depending on how it operates, depending on the moral framework within which it operates. So, for yeah. example, it's not enough to, we don't, we don't say love is good and hate hate is bad. It right. depends what you love. If you love all the wrong things, if you love evil, if you love the world, then your yep. love is bad. And in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus, I think it is, is commended for their hatred of the Nicolaitans, these heretics who are promoting some kind of immorality. Uh, and uh, it, their hatred is good. Jesus says, you hate them, I hate them too. So there's a kind of good hatred. There are things that we ought to love and things we ought to hate. It's possible to love the wrong things. It's possible to hate the wrong things. So, uh, and I would say empathy is similar to that. I think the problem is we have promoted empathy to a position it does not deserve in right. terms of, I guess you could say, the emotional 
uh, hierarchy uh, right. these days. But but empathy, I think the, I think the, and and I and again, I want to reiterate that I really do like Rigney's work on this. I thought his interview with Doug was great. Right. With Doug Wilson, I thought that uh, the articles he wrote for Desiring God were good and brought a lot of clarifications. Right. But but the point I would make is this. Empathy can be good or bad depending on the moral framework. It needs a moral framework mm-hmm. uh, within which to operate if, it, if it's going to be useful to us. Empathy is sometimes distinguished from sympathy. Empathy mm-hmm. is suffering in. Sympathy is suffering with. Um, one of the differences would be whether or not you actually help the person who is suffering. Uh, you can empathize with a person who is suffering and do absolutely nothing to change their situation. Um, and there, are, there, there, there may be uh, situations where that's all you can do. You can't solve the problem. If, if, a, right. uh, if a friend of yours loses a loved one, you can't solve that problem and bring the person back from the dead or something like that. So there would be a place where empathy may be entirely appropriate. You can't, uh, you can't solve the problem. All you can do is, is uh, in a sense, enter into their suffering with them. Right. Uh, but, but, but in a lot of situations, what people need is not so much empathy, what they, what they need more is sympathy that will actually pull them out of the, um, out of the, out of the problem that they're in or the suffering that they're enduring. Um, one of the, 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 the classic biblical text for empathy is Romans 12, 15. And I, I think I can use this passage to show you how empathy yeah. needs a moral framework. So Re- Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Okay, it doesn't say to solve the problems of those who weep, because again, that may be beyond us. Sometimes we can do yep. that, sometimes we can't. If we can, we should, but that's not always possible. But it does, it is referring here to entering into in some way the emotional state of someone. But it we should be very careful how we understand this because it could be right. badly misunderstood and lead us to a place we don't want to go. Let's say you have somebody who has been planning to rob a bank or kidnap a child. And let's say the police find out about their plot, their scheme, and they're able to stop it. And now this person is weeping because they were not able to pull off the crime. Should you weep with the frustrated criminal? Uh, No, of course not. Okay, of course not. Um, Should you rejoice if he pulls it off and he's happy about that? Should you rejoice with him? No, of course not. So empathy has has to be guided by some kind of moral framework to know where to land. Otherwise, it could actually be very, very dangerous. Right. No, that's good. That's really good. And I, and I, and I think the, you know, the kind of the money shot of, and you've already alluded to it, but the money shot of that conversation in my mind um, was the the image of somebody, you know, drowning, and you know, the, mm. the 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 sympathetic the empathetic person jumps in there with them and goes, yeah, this is terrible, um, and the sympathetic person stands on the shore and, and tries to pull them out. Um, and I thought, gosh, what a great, what a great metaphor, and what a yeah, that's, yeah. that's good, right? Um, but but I do think we've talked about this in in, in our episode on um, failure of nerve. I'm sure we'll go into it deeper, but but there's a real there's a real problem, especially in the world of leadership, with leaders who are too empathetic. There's a yes, yes. That, that can be a real that can be a real <laughs> obstacle to leading. Uh, a business or leading uh, an organization. I mean, think about the military, you know, the military leader who has to send, you know, brave young men into in uh, out to the front lines. I mean, there, there's yeah. a, how do you do that? If you, if you are, um, if you are um, 
so empathetic that you you can't you know bring yourself to do that. You have to you, there has to be some you have to be able to create some sort of distance between yourself and the the yeah. suffering of the people that you're leading in order to lead effectively. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Uh, empathy in a leader can actually paralyze the leader because any decision he makes, and you've used a you know an example from the military, but even in a say a uh, just a business setting, any sure. decision you make, there might be some people who don't like it. Well, if you are overly empathetic, so you want to please everybody and keep everybody happy, and you have to make a decision that's going to please some people and displease others, no matter what you do, then you are paralyzed into indecisiveness. And that makes right. it impossible for you to lead. And when leaders are indecisive, as Friedman points out, that creates chronic anxiety within mm -hmm. the whole system, within the whole institution. And, and of course, you know, people can't follow a leader who's not going anywhere or a leader right. who can't make decisions. So an overly empathetic leader is just not going to, what's going to happen is he's going to end up trying to lead from behind, which is no leadership yeah. at all. Let yeah. me go back though, to, to a couple other things here that I think are important in terms of sort of setting out the groundwork for empathy. Um, to empathize, you know, one of the reasons that, that empathy is pushed today as, as being so virtuous is because it's seen as compassionate, which again, compassion actually is more like sympathy than empathy. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in fact, compassion and sympathy are really synonyms. Empathy is something distinct from them. Right. Um, but um, I would say that if you cannot empathize at all, not only do we have a failure of imagination, like if you can't see something from somebody else's perspective or imagine how someone is feeling, mm -hmm. um, and if you don't have any empathy at all, you're probably a psychopath of some sort. I mean, you have That's to right. have some measure of empathy, yep. uh, I think, to be a well-functioning uh, human being. But again, the right. problem is we have given empathy way too high a place. So, so think about this. I mean, it's, it's one thing for me to be able to put myself in somebody else's shoes and imagine what things are like in their perspective. We do this when we're reading books all the time. You put yourself in the place of the, of the leading character in the book or in the movie you're watching. If you're watching, you know, a scary movie, you kind of get, you know, uh, if you're really empathetic with the character, you might feel a little bit of that fear yourself that, you know, the sure. character is feeling within the story. And, and, and that can, that's healthy. That's fine. That, uh, there's no problem with that at all. But the problem I think in our day is that empathy has been hijacked by Marxism as so many mm -hmm. other things have been hijacked by Marxism. And, you know, Marxism looks at everything in terms of an oppressor and an oppressee. You know, there's one who's doing the oppressing and then there is the victim. And sure. what Marxism tells us essentially is that we cannot question the victim. We cannot question the victim's feelings. Right. Okay. Uh, right. Because if you're a victim, then essentially you can do no wrong. And so we have to, you know, so, so, so. I've said, I've said empathy has to have a moral framework, okay? And I think that framework ought to be the you know, biblical law. It ought to be the law of scripture right. that guides our empathy. Right. Um, Marxism operates in a different kind of way. Marxism says your empathy should always go towards the person who claims to be a victim. So if somebody right. claims to be a victim, then that's the way your empathy is going to flow. Right. And that obviously is a huge, huge problem for us. I, would you also say, Rich, that that empathy has been hijacked by postmodernism? This idea that you no. can't relativism, you, right? You you can't yeah. speak authoritatively about anything that you don't personally feel. You know, you yes. you you yes. can't you can't you can't speak to the issue of racism unless you yourself have personally been a victim of racism. 
That's uh, right. And, right. And and the irony, one of the ironies of that. Yeah. So when, when like, for example, when, when men are told you can't have an opinion about abortion, right. okay, only women, can't, right. know, because only women, well, of course, with transgenderism, who knows, but still, this is a convenient right. argument right. for people to pull out right. when it comes to abortion. Men can't have an opinion. Okay. That, that is, that is allowing empathy to kind of override everything else. The facts don't matter. Right. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, basic morality even gets thrown out the window because uh, of empathy. Um, but one thing that's ironic about that is that studies about empathy have shown that we tend to empathize with people who are most like us. So like you right. talk about empathy and racism, okay, well, empathy actually can create racism because mm-hmm. again, studies have shown uh, that empathy is a form of bias. Right. And you tend to be very empathetic with people who are more like you. So just to give an example of this, when there is an accusation of sexual harassment in the workplace, when they've done studies of this, what they found is men tend to tend to empathize with the man who's been accused of sexual harassment because they probably can easily imagine themselves being accused of uh, of something, even if they were innocent. Uh, it, it's easy for them to put themselves in the shoes of the man who's being accused of sexual harassment. Whereas, of course, women completely empathize with the woman who's been harassed because it's right. easy for them to see themselves as the victim of harassment. And what gets left out of that altogether are the facts of the case. What actually happened? That's what matters the most is what actually happened here. And then, you know, once we've established the facts of the case, then we know which way our empathy should flow. But empathy tends to be this sort of instinctive response where you are just empathetic with the person that you are, you know, that you're quickest or that's easiest for you to identify with in a particular situation, which means empathy tends to be a very homogenous kind of thing. We tend to empathize with the person who's most like us. Well, you can see how, say, on racial issues, uh, yeah. that can that can easily breed a kind of racism. Okay, the facts right. don't matter. I don't need to know the facts of the case. I just need to know the color of the skin of the people involved. I don't right. need to know the facts of the case. I just need to know was this a man? Was this a you know what 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 is what is what are the sexes of the persons involved? And then I, you know, um, so you can see how empathy leads to things like the Me Too movement. Believe all yeah. women, uh, because. What's going to happen? Women automatically assume because of empathy, because of rudderless empathy, that the woman must be in the right and the man must be in the wrong. You know, the abortion issue is another is another place where you see that's a little bit different than what I was just talking about. But it's still a place where you see empathy can either be good or bad. Take the the debate between the pro-abortion people and the pro-life people. Okay. You have a woman and you have a child. The question is, who do you empathize with in this case? The pro-choice people, the pro-abortion people empathize with the woman. Oh, we can't force this woman to bear a child against her will. The pro-life people empathize with the baby. You can't murder that baby. The baby's done nothing wrong. The child is innocent. So in a way you could say it's a question of uh, and I'm not saying, I'm, obviously, the moral framework tells us, you know, the biblical moral framework would tell us it's absolutely wrong to murder the child in the womb, no matter what. Right. But in a way, you, you know, the the whole pro-abortion case rests on empathy for the mother who they would say, you know, should not be forced to bury this child. Never mind that, you know, it's very likely her own action, her own um, 
decision sure. to engage in sexual activity that produced this child. Right. Uh, you know, and so therefore she has a responsibility and an obligation towards it. Um, but um, that, that's another case where I think you see empathy. If it's cut loose from that moral framework, it just creates creates problems. Well, I, I, I like how you, you frame that as empathy is a form of bias. And I think that's a good way of, of thinking about it. And that can, that can obviously be uh, a good thing, um, you know, to be biased towards, towards certain people in certain situations. Um, but, but I think you have to uh, acknowledge the fact that that is, in fact, what's happening. You're, you're sort of subverting. It's the opposite of justice, you know, the, the, the statue of justice with, with her eyes, you know, uh, blindfolded, um, empathy, empathy is the, the opposite of that. You know, it's, it's jumping right in the middle. And I, I think of it as, I think of empathy and again, um, you know, we, we've tried to talk a little bit, I think already about where empathy goes, uh, where, where empathy is good. You know, you, you made the comment that, that that's pretty much the definition of a psychopath is somebody who cannot, who doesn't have any empathy, you know, they cannot feel emotion, cannot imagine what kind of pain, um, you know, somebody else is going through. And so they sit there and torture. It's kind of nihilism. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I, I do think, um, p- part of the rise of empathy in our culture has, has been this, this kind of, um, has been feminism and, and, and a feminization, you know, of, mm-hmm. of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, um, because it is a, a typically feminine, Virtue. You, you look at a mom um, and the role that a mom plays in a child's life. You know, she's the one who, when she hears the baby crying, she gets up and goes and, and takes care of him. Typically, you know, there's there's a there's a baked, uh, hardwired empathy for that child. Where it goes wrong is when a kid is is ten years old and they can't they can't you know tumble over. Uh, on their bike or, or, or playing soccer in the front yard without mommy coming and picking them up. And, and dad, you know, typically comes in in that situation and goes, Hey, let, let him, he'll be okay. You know, rub some dirt on it. You're going to be okay. Let's get back up. And in fact, I had a, um, it's kind of interesting timing because I, I I'm coaching under 10 soccer right now. My son's under 10 soccer ga- uh, team. And we had practice last night and, uh, there was a, there was a boy on the team who, who, um, was just, you know, it was the weirdest thing. He he got the ball stolen from him and it kind of sent him into this like this like tra- like post traumatic you know, he 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 kind of lost it, you know, and and he couldn't stop sitting there talking about about oh, he stole and he scared me and and like he was just really upset about it. And and I finally had to go, "Hey, buddy, can I talk now?" And he's like, "Oh, okay." I was like, "Let's let's let's move on, right?" Um, but but I, I was certain that uh, that that there was a there was probably not a dad in the picture in that right, in that right. little guy's life. Yes. Right. Yeah. Or either an absent dad or an abdicating dad. Yeah. Right. Empathy, uh, it, you know, is very is uh, the maternal instinct is very empathetic in women. Right. And again, with the right moral framework and with balance from a father's objectivity, uh, right. is is healthy. There's no question, yep. but you raise a really important point. One thing that I, that I picked up from Warren Farrell, you know, he's written a lot on this, you know, he wrote the boy crisis. He's done yep. some really good talks and really good writing on this. Yeah, he's good. He makes the point that, that something that parents need to understand. If you want to raise a child who can empathize in the right kind of way, you need to understand empathy does not come from being empathized with. 
Uh, if you over empathize with your children, right. what you're going to create is a sense of entitlement. And so when a boy playing soccer gets the ball stolen, he breaks down because he thinks he's, he's entitled to possess the ball. And, and, uh, and that's how he thinks. Yeah. And so then when yeah. it's taken from him, he feels like he's been victimized when really that's yeah. just part of the game. That's right. Empathy does not come from being empathized with. In fact, if you yeah. over empathize with your children, that is going to lead to narcissism. Yeah. yeah. Children who have been empathized with too much grow up to become narcissists. And one thing yeah. we're seeing in a culture that is so, um, that, that has so many missing fathers, either they're absent or they're abdicating, basically a fatherless culture is you get a, you get a, you get, you raise a generation of narcissists because they've, they, they have been, they've been over empathized with. Mm. That's and really uh, I think that's a, that's a huge, huge issue. So I would say that empathy is very, can be very destructive when it comes to parenting because empathy really in a way is the opposite of objectivity and your child needs both. They do need to experience some empathy. Sure. They need it. They need, yeah. they, they need a touch of it. They need a taste of it, but yeah. they also need to be told hard things about themselves and they need to be trained to not think of themselves as victims and that they can't think of themselves as entitled. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they have to take responsibility for themselves. And what empathy does is empathy sort of passes the buck and you end up, you know, you end up blaming somebody else. Um, mm. Basically, if I am miserable, it's your fault. And it becomes mm. even a form of emotional blackmail. I mean, I think you see this with the LGBTQ stuff, that yeah. if you preach against transgenderism, if you speak out against homosexuality, it's your fault if they commit suicide. Yeah, right. And that, that has silenced a lot, of, a lot of pastors and a lot of parents from talking about these issues because, oh, I don't want to cause somebody else's suicide. Well, that, that's empathy cut loose from any kind of moral framework. That, that's, that's the dangerous kind of empathy. What we need to recognize is that there are situations in life where empathy, receiving empathy, would be bad for us, where mm -hmm. empathy would be terrible for us. Right. Um, sometimes empathy is not what you need most. And, and I'll give you some, some really basic examples of this, and then you can tell me, Larson, what you think about it. When my wife, if my wife is sad, uh, about something, you know, she's grieving over something. I do need to be as a husband, I need to be empathetic with her. Totally. I need to, she, she wants me to weep with those who weep. And when she's weeping, she wants me to, to be able to enter into that and experience that. And that, that's one way I can actually bring comfort to her. Um, right. But at the same time, I need to keep my boundaries up. So, you know, I think the example that Joe Rigney used is like, if somebody's sinking in quicksand, you don't go jump in the quicksand with them. Okay, that doesn't help. Or if somebody's drowning, you don't go jump in with them so you can both drown together. That, that, that makes things worse instead of better. Um, women want to be understood. Wives want to be understood. But they also need to have their problems solved in some way. So, for example, when my wife is feeling anxiety, mm -hmm. the absolute worst thing I could do is enter into that anxiety with her and get sucked mm -hmm. up into that anxiety right. and start to feel the same kind of worry or stress or anxiety that she is feeling. What she needs me to do is have a healthy boundary between myself and that anxiety, a healthy emotional boundary between where I am and where she is with her anxiety. I need to be right. a self-differentiated leader is the way Friedman would put it. And then from the outside, standing outside of that anxiety, I can speak into that anxiety. I can speak words of peace and comfort and try to help her rise above that anxiety. That's me. Re Instead of jumping down into the pit of anxiety with him, so now I'm there too, 
I'm reaching down into the pit where I can pull her out so she can rise above that anxiety. So the, yep. showing her empathy in that situation would be the worst possible thing I could do. Think about somebody who is a drug addict. Do drug addicts need empathy? There are actually some billboards. I don't remember where I saw this, but the billboard showed a drug user and it said something like, don't be ashamed that you're using, be proud that you're using safely. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that a good, that, that's empathy. Okay. That's That's empathy for the, for the drug user or, Hey, let's put needles in the bathrooms, you know, so they're readily available for the heroin addict, for the heroin right. addict. Right. Okay. That's empathy. But that's, that's the, that's the last thing that person needs. Okay. What that person mm -hmm. needs is to be confronted about their addiction and then they need to, to be challenged to forsake that addiction. It's, it's an idolatry. It's a form of idolatry for them. And they need to be challenged to repent and to rise above it. So empathy is the last thing in the world that they need. I have right. seen lots of pastors, lots of parents, lots of elders in the church uh, basically allow themselves to be silenced because of empathy. So where they cannot challenge sin, they cannot call people to repentance because that would hurt people's feelings. You know, instead, we've got to, we, in, in, in essence, we jump in the pit with them uh, instead of seeking to pull them out of it. So it, it is a huge, huge problem. I think empathy has largely destroyed the Christian counseling ministry. Mm -hmm. um, so Christian counselors, you know, obviously, there's, there's, they're just as, you know, they're faithful and unfaithful Christian pastors. They're faithful and un unfaithful Christian counselors. But so much of the Christian counseling industry is dominated by an unhealthy an unhelpful empathy where the counselor can no longer tell the person what they need to right. hear. And of course the counselee who is paying <laughs> this counselor uh, in a lot of cases is paying this counselor basically to affirm them and mm -hmm. to take their side and what, you know, whatever kind of conflict they might be describing and just basically to make them feel better when really if the counselor is going to faithfully apply the word of God, the counselor is going to have to say some really hard and challenging and difficult things, some things that don't sound very empathetic to the counselee in order to help them uh, rise above and take responsibility yeah. and repent in the ways they need to repent and, and so forth. I think empathy yeah. has completely destroyed the Christian counseling. I shouldn't say completely, but has well, largely yeah. destroyed the Christian counseling industry. Well, I mean, it, it, psychologists and therapists and counselors alike. I mean, the the you know the the solution. And this is I was I was listening to somebody talk about this uh, uh, today. Um, you know, anti anxiety, antidepressants, these drugs uh, do not cure, uh, cannot cure uh, chronic pathological depression or anxiety. It, there's there's no evidence that they have ever cured, um, anybody of those things. They only, they only have the ability to mask, you know, at, at some level mask those symptoms. And, uh, and it's like that, that ultimately is a good, is a good proxy for what empathy is doing, you know, in, in, in an emotional way, hmm. it's, it's saying, let me, let me just sit here and, and, uh, and, and sort of, um, emote with you and affirm you in your, in your, your, the state you're in right now. And, um, and I'm not, I'm not all that interested in actually making you feel better, um, or, or actually fixing your, your problem. 
I think that you you shared with me, and and I had seen it before. I showed it to my wife, and she she was upset because uh, every time she's seen it, she's seen it a thousand times. But the wife with the nail in her head video, yeah, um, the video. It's not about the nail. Yeah, yeah, it's not about the nail. I mean, the classic. You know, it's it it, it is a classic conversation, and it's a good example. I think it's a great example of of when and where the place of empathy, right? You've got a, in the video, a wife who's got a nail sticking out of her head and she's sitting there talking about how this, this pain and this pressure, and she just wants her husband to, to empathize, you know, just to right. just not solve to, it, not pull the nail out, but just, just, you always recognize her pain. You know? she's, yeah. she, and I do think, you know, I, I think the, the, um, the good side of empathy is, and, and I do think as a leader or a husband, uh, father, the, the the empathy part is is a it really is about a you need to actually um, have the imagination to to be able to to um, to get in their head and see where they're coming from you know and see things from their perspective that that that's empathy at some level or it's a kind of empathy the the ability to to listen to somebody who's got a problem. And before you jump to a solution, to be able to ensure that that a you know where they're coming from, and b that they know that you know where they're coming from. I mean, as a leader, you know there there are times where somebody comes to you know I I, I run a, a company, and there are times where somebody comes to me with a problem, and I know within the first two seconds what the problem is and how to solve it, but I keep my mouth shut because I want them to know. I am listening and I do, and, and I do understand. I'm not just, I'm not just, you know, minimizing your, your problem or your, your issue. And so that, that's the, you know, I think that's the, but the, but like you said, um, you know, you, you've got to, you've, you've, as a husband, as a leader, as a father, you've got to come with a solution. Um, and, and I think the example about anxiety is really good because, um, how unhelpful, you know, usually, and my wife has told me this all the time, I'm sure yours too, this, you know, my wife comes to me with her anxiety because she knows that I am emotionally above, you know, that, that I'm, she, 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 she's called me a rock a lot of times. You know, I, I love that you're a rock, that I can get, you know, that I can, I can be comforted by the fact that I can, you know, unload all of this anxiety or, or, or uh, emotion on you. And I know that you're, you're going to be, kind and understanding and listen, but it's not going to rattle you. You're not going to sink down into it and we're going to spiral out of control. Yeah, that's really good. You know, and I, I really like what you, you know, of course that, that video is not about the nail. It, it makes a helpful point, but not the whole of the point that needs to be made. Right. In first Peter three, we'll talk about this with husbands and wives for just a minute since you kind of yeah. opened that can of worms. Yeah. Uh, first Peter chapter three, Peter says that husbands should live with their wives with understanding because she is the weaker vessel. And if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers will, you know, basically if you don't listen to your wife, God says, I'm not going to listen to you. You know, wow. if you don't, if yeah. you don't hear the cries of your wife, I won't hear your pleas in prayer either. Wow. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that, that, that is kind of the, the, um, the basic teaching Peter's giving there. But to me, it's really interesting when Peter says to live with your wife with understanding, I do think that understanding requires, I mean, empathy is not the only thing, certainly, but empathy is one thing that we could say is in the mix uh, where you do understand, uh, you know, the, the particular challenges that come with 
uh, your wife's position. Right. Uh, her position in the marriage is the one who has to submit. Uh, her position as, you know, biologically is the one who's going to say get pregnant and have children. Uh, her position uh, emotionally is the one who is, um, I think when, when Peter talks about weakness there, perhaps even that's a part of it, that, that women are more emotional, uh, more, more emotionally fragile uh, than men in some ways. Not that men don't have their own uh, fragilities, but um, I think that, that's, that's an, there's an element of that as well. Women are sensitive. You know, and so understanding your wife means you're going to understand her particular sensitivities. Right. But understanding, you know, say understanding her problems, it's not enough to empathize with them. In many cases, you are called to, to, to solve them. Again, to not jump right. in the pit, but to pull her out of it. And, you know, so I think a major problem in a lot of contemporary Christian marriages is that there are two weaker vessels. Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if the woman is the weaker vessel, that means the man is to be the stronger vessel. He's to have a strength. He's to supply a strength in the relationship that she lacks. So yes, I've heard the same kind of things from my wife. You know, you, you, you're, it, it, yeah. that your wife would say, "I'm thankful that I can uh, unload my anxieties on right. you." And and uh, God gave men broader shoulders so we can carry those burdens that that our right. wives bring to us. I mean, that's right. that's. You know, that's part of what it means to be a husband is that you carry those burdens, you carry those anxieties. But if you get sucked into the vortex of that anxiety and right. all of that, then you can no longer help your wife. So that is, and again, Friedman does a really good job, better than anybody else I've ever read in dealing with this particular issue, how to be a self-differentiated leader where you're connected with those you're leading. He stresses right. that point. They have to know that you care about them, that you're kind to them, that you love them that you can show them compassion, but, but at the same time that you're connected, you're also differentiated, which mm -hmm. means that you are, you're not going to be sucked into the emotional vortex, the emotional swirl, you know, right. the way I don't, I don't think Friedman actually puts it this way, or, or maybe he does. And I've just forgotten it, but this is the way I've put it, you know, when it comes to sort of summarizing what Friedman says about leadership, and this applies to pastors and sessions. It applies to husbands. It applies to CEOs and company presidents in order to lead. You have to always be the calmest person in the room. Yeah. Because everybody else may feel a great deal of anxiety about something. Everybody else may, you know, there may be a great deal of tenseness or even anger or just, you know, different, different emotions that can spread across a whole institution. And in order to be the leader, you've got to be the calmest man in the room, which means yeah. that you're, you have your emotions, doesn't mean you're stoic, but it means you have your emotions under control. Mm -hmm. You can, uh, and, and that calmness then actually allows you to bring a kind of peace and a kind of calmness to everybody else. When they see, if your wife sees that, hey, we're going through a really hard time, some unexpected things happened financially, but when she sees, oh, my husband is unflappable, my husband yeah. is a rock, the waves are crashing on the ocean, and my husband is like a lighthouse, he's holding his ground, he's not gonna be knocked over, he can continue to shine a light into the darkness of the storm. When she sees that, then that brings a certain calmness and peace to her. Right. But so many times husbands get just as wrapped up in the emotion of the moment and the anxiety of it all. And then they start to burden their wives and, yeah. you know, they make the burden even heavier instead of relieving that burden for their wife, they make yeah. it even heavier for their wife. And, and, and that's not what Peter wants. You know, again, right. the fact that she's this, the weaker vessel in these particular ways means that you need to be the stronger vessel. And right. one of the ways you can show your strength is by showing that you can bear those burdens and by, uh, by holding things together when, you know, she's, 
you know, she's very distressed because it seems like everything's coming unglued. And obviously in doing all of that, you do that by the grace of God. You do that as a representative, as an icon of Christ in your marriage. All, you know, we, could, we can talk about all those aspects of it that, of course, Friedman would never get to. And Friedman doesn't even talk about this specifically in, in, in terms right. of marriage the way we're doing here. But I think it's taking some of the principles that he has identified, yeah. which I think in, for the most part are very, uh, very biblical and applying them. Another way he gets at this is by talking about reactivity. To be, mm. to be a good and wise leader, you can't just be reactive all the time. And that's right. something that, that will sometimes happen is a leader gets too reactive. And again, it's the same kind of thing. Then he can no longer lead his family or his company or his church through the choppy waters because he's, he's just being reactive. And that reactivity can be very destructive. So that's something else I would point to. Absolutely. There, so, so basically, you know, I think there is, it, it is possible for there to be good empathy. But I think we have to recognize we live in a culture that is drowning in toxic empathy. Yeah, that's good. Uh, we live in a culture in which toxic empathy has infected almost everything. Um, I would say it's empathy. You talked about it in terms, you know, we talked about it in terms of its relationship to Marxism and the kind of victim mindset. We've talked about it in terms of postmodernism and the kind of relativism that it brings with it where the facts don't matter. I would say the same kind of thing, empathy and emotionalism. You know, mm -hmm. our emotions are um, intuitive judgments that we make about the world. If I lose a loved one, uh, my emotional response is grief because I'm judging that death is a bad thing, that death is a curse, that the world's not supposed to be this way. We aren't supposed to be separated from our loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, if I see somebody hear the gospel and repent of their sin, I rejoice in that. And my emotional state is making a judgment that this is a good thing, that a, that a sinner who is somebody who is dead in sins and trespasses has been brought right. to life in Christ and they've had their sins forgiven. And I rejoice in that because that's the way the world is supposed to be. That's a good thing. Right. But what happens when our emotions are not calibrated by God's word? They're not, they're not dialed in to, um, to, 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 to reality and, and to, uh, God's, you know, the, the framework for right and wrong that God has given to us in his word. Then what happens? My emotions basically become an authority a substitute authority that takes the place of God's word. And so my emotions are no longer information about something, but my emotions become uh, a kind of final authority that cannot be questioned. You know, and so the, the whole idea that every emotion has to be validated, uh, which is something that a lot of counselors will say, uh, it's, it, you know, however you feel, that's fine. We're not going to pass judgment on our feelings. Now, our emotions, while they are judgments about the world, our emotions themselves have to be judged and they have to be judged according to the word of God. They have to be held up to the standard. And sometimes we have to tell our emotions to get in line. We, we have to talk back to our emotions and put yeah. them in their rightful place because our yeah. emotions have gotten out of whack. If, if my, if I have a young child that spills a glass of milk and I just fly off the handle in anger, well, that's right. an inappropriate emotional response, okay? Right. It's obviously not a good thing that he spilled the glass of milk, but it's not that big a deal. It's not wor worthy of that kind of really intense emotional response, certainly not worthy of that kind of anger when it was just an, an, you know, an accidental thing that happened. And so I've got to be able to suppress that emotional response. And at that point, I've got to tell my emotions to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, to get in line with what the word of God says about this kind of thing, to just not, you know, to not make mm -hmm. a big issue out of it. Yeah. So, um, you have, 
you have a kind of emotionalism in our culture today where emotions are allowed to override everything else. And I think we've gotten there because of empathy. And we're supposed to empathize with everybody's emotions, no matter what they are, or at least if they're on, you know, again, this goes back to the Marxism, at least if they're on the right side of the oppressor oppressive relationship, then we're supposed to validate all of their emotions. And again, this is what gives you me too. This is what, because, because it doesn't matter whether the woman is making a true accusation or a false accusation. The facts don't matter. The, the, the point is, if she, if she feels this way, we're supposed to sympathize with her or empathize, I should say, with her. Yeah. Uh, and that's just how it goes. Well, I think the thing that, you know, and I, and I think you're exactly right about all of that. And, and when I look at the emotionalism and the way that we've, we've enshrined emotions as, as, a, um, as kind of a trump card, you know, you can, if you just emote hard enough, um, about whatever it is, we're, we're going to, you should be left alone and you must be right. You know, and, and you see this, you see all these videos, you know, I follow on Instagram deranged, it's like deranged libs or something. And it's, it's just clips of, of you know, from TikTok or from protests or whatever. And you just see these, um, these folks who are just totally indoctrinated by the, the, this, this kind of spirit of the age empathy and, and, and the like, where it's just like, we're, we're going to go into a, uh, you know, a, a pro-life, uh, event or something and just scream, uh, and emote and basically just like a little, you know, two-year-old child flopping on the ground, throwing a a fit, you know? And you're like, how is that, how is that accomplishing anything? And how, how did you make it to your twenties without having, any control over your emotions. And the other side of it too is, is I think the, and this is something dads recognize, uh, I think, and uh, that moms because of their, um, their empathy miss is, is uh, when you are overly empathetic, you are wide open to manipulation. You, you make yourself a target for manipulation. So you're basically training your, your, your children or those around you that, all I have to do is just show some emotion and I, and, and it's like a, it's like a cheat code or, or a, or a remote control. I can, I can get this person to do whatever it is I want them to do. If I just, yeah, if I just exactly play, right. play my emotions, right. Yeah. John Piper actually had a good article. I mean, I know, you know, Piper's kind of a mixed bag with his hyper pietism, but he had a pretty sure. good article about this several years ago on emotional blackmail yeah. where, where basically, you know, if you, if you allow emotion to become a substitute, you know, you allow people's feelings to become the authority and substitute people's feelings for the word of God as the standard. Yeah. Then when somebody says I felt unloved, yeah. then, then there's no answer to that other than to say, okay, then I obviously right. failed. And, and right. he makes the point that just because someone says they feel in love does not mean they haven't been loved. OK, right. if you spank a child or if you rebuke a drunkard or, you know, any number of other we, we could. I mean, you could sure. give a thousand examples of this. That person may not feel loved in the moment because mm-hmm. they are thinking if I was feeling loved, I would feel good. I would feel affirmed. I would be you know, I would get what I want. That's how that's what it would be to be. You know, that's what it means for me to be loved. But in reality, when a parent disciplines a child or when a pastor uh, confronts, you know, say sin in his congregation, that is the loving thing to do, even though it doesn't feel good at the time. Right. 
So, right. and, and, and so that is loving because it's loving according to the word of God. That's right. Somebody may say, well, I didn't feel loved when you rebuked me. I didn't feel love. You know, sometimes you even, you know, you look at the, it's interesting to me, like I, I preached through James a while back and James talks about the tongue and, and how, you know, he talks yeah. about gentleness and all of this. And then he uses very harsh language uh, to confront sin. And you think, well, is James contradicting himself? He says we should be gentle, and he talks about you know the damage the tongue can do, and then he turns around and uses this very harsh-sounding language to confront sin. Well, no, uh, he's that—that that is the loving thing to do. Jesus, of course, the same kind of thing. Everybody says, oh, well, you know, Jesus loved sinners. Well, Jesus also confronted the Pharisees and called them a brood of vipers and said that they were sons of the devil and they were headed for hell. Yeah. That and Jesus was speaking in perfect love every time he said those things to the Pharisees. Yeah. So again, but if, but if you make emotion the standard, then you're going to end up saying, well, because that hurts somebody's feelings, therefore it must have been wrong to do it. Okay, whether or not it yeah. hurts somebody's feelings, that that has that, whether or not somebody's feelings are hurt right. does not tell you anything about whether or not you are in the right or in the wrong. I, I actually told my kids this growing up because. You know, I, one of them would come to me, it would be a girl, one of my daughters that would do this, would come and say, you know, so-and-so hurt my feelings. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, did your feelings need to be hurt? You know, uh, yeah. there's not a sin called hurting somebody's feelings. Let's talk about whether or not they sinned, okay? Yeah. Whether or not you're feeling, you know, maybe your feelings should have gotten hurt or maybe you're being too sensitive. Just saying your feelings got hurt yeah. does not tell me anything about who's right or who's wrong. That's right. Um, I've had people do this with me as a pastor as well and say, well, you're, that teaching hurt my feelings. I'm like, well, that doesn't right. tell me whether or not what I said was right or wrong. Let's go to the right. word of God and see. Well, on the flip side and, and in business and marketing, this is a, this is a mantra for a good reason. Um, and, and the mantra is, you know, perception is reality. And so th there is a, yeah. There, there is a, obviously there's a ditch and, and this is why I think this, this topic is so interesting is that there really is a ditch on the other side of the road where, where you get, and I, and I think men end up in this ditch more frequently where they, they uh, enshrine objectivity, they enshrine, yeah. you know, precision and, and, and truth, um, over against the, uh, the, the duty they have as a, as a leader in whatever realm we're talking about to um, to convey uh, you know, to, to effectively lead people so that they you know Doug Wilson says this he talks about um, parents who whose children struggle to um, meet the standard that the parents have set um, his, his advice is lower your standards you know and and, and the point there is is not um, just keep lowering them as low as you as your kids demand you you lower them. The point is, is the goal is for your children to love the standard. You know, your goal is for them to love right, the standard, right. not not just to meet the standard. And uh, and so in the same way, you know, there there's a there's a real ditch in being so obsessed with the truth of a matter. Um, and, and with, you know, so, so with your, with your daughter telling you that she felt, uh, hurt, you know, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable question to ask the son who hurt her. Hey, were you trying to hurt her feelings? You know, did you do that on purpose? Um, right, yeah, right. I was, I, I recognized she's a weaker vessel. I, I recognized the weakness and I took advantage of it and that, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
You, yeah, no, well, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, so that, that goes back to what I said. If you don't have any empathy at all, you, you're probably on your way to being a psychopath. That's right. Uh, so, so I mean, I'm, you know, the point is not that we need to be as insensitive as possible or completely right. disregard people's feelings. Right. It's just we have to keep all of that in its pro- keep emotion in its proper place. That's your right. feelings are never an authority. The word of God is the authority, That's and right. your emotions, like every other aspect of, of who you are and what you do has to be held up to the standard of God's word. It needs to be in submission to God's word. Mm-hmm. But, but, but you're right. I mean, a kind of heartless obedience is not what we're aiming for either. Uh, right. We, we, we want to, you know, the, the example of having kids who don't just meet the standard, but love the standard is, is really, really good. Yeah. I want to make one last point, Lars, before sure. we wrap this up, because we're, yeah. we're, you know, God a minute always turns into 50 minutes or 60 minutes, but right. uh, one last point, And that is, you know, we've talked about how uh, toxic empathy, this kind of empathy that is cut loose from any kind of moral framework, from a biblical moral framework, how dangerous it is and the problems it can cause, whether it's in the culture at large or in our own families and our churches and counseling in all kinds of ways. One last point I want to make. This is, this is, a, this is, one, this is one angle on assessing what has happened with wokeness. You know, everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, everybody is well aware of this woke movement. Uh, wokeness is all around us. It's infiltrated the church. What is wokeness all about? I think it's maybe more than anything else, wokeness is a Christian heresy. Mm-hmm. And that is because wokeness weaponizes Christian compassion Mm. against Christian convictions. It uses a distorted form of Christian compassion, or we could even say Christian empathy, to uh, attack and undermine Christian convictions. And I think it's really important to understand that's what's happening. This is why wokeness is so sinister, uh, why, why why it is so dangerous, because coming those who come from a woke perspective they can say a lot of things that sound really good about love, about compassion, about empathy, empathy. They can say a lot of things that sound really Christian all the while using those very things as weapons against Christian truth and against the the Christian position on different issues and against Christian conviction. So I think that's really important to understand that, that Christians should not allow themselves to be gaslit by the woke Christians yeah. should not allow themselves to be manipulated by the woke. They should not be seduced by it, really, is what's happening. I think it's it's very alluring for this reason. It looks so Christian. Yeah. It can look very, very Christian to people who are not very discerning. Yeah. And so it's easy to get sucked into this wokeness uh, movement when really what it's going to do is, while it may sound like it's using a lot of Christian concepts and it may sound very compassionate, uh, actually what it's going to do, it's like an acid that just eats through everything and ultimately destroys Christian truth and Christian convictions. And so mm-hmm. um, we've got to push back against it. We should not let Christian compassion or empathy be weaponized against Christian truth. And that I think is what the woke, uh, particularly in the church, but even in the culture at large, uh, I think that's what's happening. Yep. And, uh, and it, you know, they weaponize our own doctrine of compassion against us. Yep. So if you challenge mm-hmm. homosexuality, and you push back against it, you're not being compassionate. If you won't use the preferred pronouns of the transgender person and you're going to use their God-given biological pronouns, then you're not being compassionate. Uh, if you discipline a child, you're not being compassionate. And yeah. that, that's what we hear again and again and again. If you don't let women make decisions and control their own bodies, you're not being compassionate.
compassionate. And I think right. this is how it's it's worked its way into the church and why so many Christians have been uh, swept away into some form of progressivism mm -hmm. is because of this false appeal to empathy. Right. Right. And again, it's a kind of false Christian compassion. And, and there are a lot of, there, again, there are a lot of Christians, including a lot of pastors, who have fallen for it. So we really need to resist allowing ourselves to be manipulated yeah. or gaslighted in any kind of way by any yeah. of this. We need to recognize it for what it is. It is a Christian right. heresy, um, the same way that, say, Islam or Mormonism are Christian heresies. They take certain Christian ideas or concepts or doctrines or especially Christian language but then they fill it with entirely different content. And yeah. then it becomes, it's very, it's very, it can be very attractive to Christians because it sounds, it, it sounds yeah. right. It sounds like yeah. they're saying a lot of things that are true yeah. uh, when really they're, they're, they're undermining the truth. Well, I'll give one last example too. Um, and, and I'll, this, this will be the last thing I'll say too. Um, we, we've seen this in our, you know, one of the distinctives of the CREC is, is our, a Catholicity, you know, with a small C or, or ecumenical approach to to uh, certain things like baptism, and uh, and and I think um, being Catholic, in, again, in that in that small C way, um, can very quickly drift uh, into relativism if if you allow. If, if, if you replace a principled Catholicity with empathy, you know, as the, so if empathy becomes the, the thing, oh, we're just empathetic towards those who have slightly different beliefs than ours, and you allow that to drive your, your decision-making, your preaching, your teaching, well, then you're, it's no longer Catholicity. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. like you said, it's a, it's heretical, it becomes heretical. And so we've we've had to do this a lot, where we we have a church that is full of Baptists, and we have to preach uh, every Sunday, and we come across passages that are very clearly, in our view, uh, teach a a, a pedo Baptist point of view or perspective, and so that's going to come through in the sermon. And if we were to let our empathy be the guide of what we do and what we don't do, instead of our principled Catholicity. Um, then we, st then our, our whole, you know, statement of faith kind of turns to mush, you know, and, and, and we start going, well, we just won't say those things. And I think that's what you're seeing in the church uh, right now is this empathy that has turned their statements of faith into an absolute just pile of goo. Um, and I'll, I'll end here with, uh, I'll let Vody Bauckham have the last word. Cause I, I, I love this. He says this all the time. Uh, that in Christianity, uh, the 11th commandment is to be nice. And, and also, by the way, none of the other commandments matter. I think that's where we are. And I think it's, I think it's what we're talking about. I think it's empathy run amok. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really good. Yeah. Niceness. I, I think that's exactly right. Where, you know, niceness replaces kindness or, or yeah. love because love is tied to the truth. You know, Paul says, speak the truth in love. And, 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 mm -hmm. and again, empathy uh, wants to divorce those two. So the truth no longer matters. And then you've just got this amorphous blob of love. And again, you get, you gave one last example. I'll give one last example too, because I, I was thinking about this earlier and I didn't mention it, but yeah, in the Same wake it. of the whole George Floyd thing, uh, you know, it just, uh, that, that was that the, the George Floyd thing was obviously very divisive in our culture. And one thing that, that we white Christians heard again and again is, Oh, well, you know, if, if, 
if blacks are weeping over the death of George Floyd, then you need to as well. Okay. Well, we definitely ought to weep over, over the fact that this is a tragedy, but basically it was again, you know, throwing out the facts of the facts no longer matter. All that matters is a white police officer, uh, black man killed. That's all that, all that matters is the skin color of the participants. And we're being told that we've got to empathize with this. But again, this is how selective empathy is. If a white supremacist was rejoicing in the death of George Floyd, which would be wicked, but am I supposed to rejoice with him? Right. Well, then then people would say, no, no, you should not. Okay, well, then empathy is selective. Well, how do I know what my empathy should select? How, yeah. Where should my empathy go? And if yeah. my, you know, so if I'm not tied to the scripture, then it's going to be the culture at large. It's going to be the world that tells me which way my empathy should flow. I would say empathy yeah. really is inescapable. You know, yeah. uh, pretty much everybody's going to empathize in some direction. The question is, yeah. where should your empathy flow? Yeah. And yeah. we cannot let the world dictate how we uh, exercise our empathy. Scripture is going to do that. And Scripture is going to always tell us the facts of the case matter. Justice matters. Before I can know in the George Floyd case where my empathy should go, I've got to know what happened. Mm-hmm. And to say, well, the facts don't matter. We just, you know, we're just going to automatically empathize with, you know, with the black yeah. person rather than with the, than the police. You just can't do that. That, that, yeah. that again, that, 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 that is divorcing any kind of love from truth and yeah. truth matters. The facts matter. Justice cannot be, you know, you cannot have justice if you disregard the facts of any particular case. Justice is going to be defined by God in his word. And and that's what matters. So empathy can have its place in the, you know, sort of the toolbox of Christian virtues and Christian practices. Empathy can have its place, but it's a rather minor place. Uh, there are much, I'd say, larger uh, and, and more significant tools that we're going to use, including things like love, and I would even say sympathy above empathy. Um, and, and, of course, justice is going to have its place, and there are all these other things. Empathy can have its place, but it's a small place, and it's one that needs to be carefully regulated by God's Word, or it's going to lead us to a really bad place. And I think that's what's that's right. happening in so much of the culture and even in the church today. Yep. Yeah, and 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 I'll I'll just say yes and amen to all of that, and and also say empathy. God God gives His gifts to different people in different measures for different purposes and callings, and 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 we're so egalitarian today that that we it, it's hard for us to even talk about something like empathy, and and without um, and and acknowledge the fact that that men and women are built differently, and God has given women a greater degree of empathy than men and that that is by design and that has a purpose that's good that we should mm-hmm. that we should rejoice in that's right and not try to try to make all men uh just as empathetic as women and all women just as objective or 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 non-empathetic as as men there's there's actually a, a purpose there um if it's ordered rightly and and uh and guided and bounded by truth as as you've said yeah well, Rich, yeah, this is all. Really this has been a ton of fun, and always is. I uh, appreciate it. Good, good yeah. uh, discussion, and uh, looking forward to our next uh, conversation. Thanks for joining us here on the Got a Minute podcast. Well, thank you, Larson. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for having. Me.